We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey guys, as always, a little housekeeping before we get going with today's pod. For today's episode, I was really fortunate to get Keith Law of ESPN to come on and cover Trouble with the Curve. Trouble with the Curve is in some ways the reason I started this podcast, a self-serious baseball movie that is anything but realistic. Keith has long been one of my favorite baseball writers, and his experience in both scouting and working in an MLB front office were essential in really breaking down the lack of authenticity in this film. I really tried to lean on his experience as much as I could in making sure we left no sin of this movie unpunished. I was a little unorganized at times, as every time you bring up one of the mistakes in this movie, two more issues pop up. But I think we accomplished our goal of properly assessing this baseball disaster. As always, if you're enjoying Trouble with the Script, please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and rate and review, which is huge for growing this pod. If you even feel so inclined, share with a friend who appreciates authenticity in sports movies just as much as you. With that, let's get going. Welcome to Trouble with the Script, the sports movie podcast that appreciates a little authenticity. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Trouble with the Script is a sports movie podcast focusing almost exclusively on the sports-centric content of sports movies. What worked, what didn't work, and what could have been done to fix it. Today, I'm very happy to welcome to the pod, senior baseball writer for ESPN.com, Keith Law. Keith, how are you doing tonight? I am good. How about you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really appreciative that you're taking the time to do this and uh, and go over this movie with me. There, there's really no one I'd rather have on for this movie. I think you're perfect for a lot of reasons that we're gonna go over in a bit. Um, so far on this podcast, we've only tackled movies that are fairly beloved with lots of sports centric positives to take from them. Today, we're gonna do the opposite. We're going over the dumpster fire of a baseball film and the pseudo namesake of this podcast, Trouble with the Curve. Gus Lobo's one of the best scouts baseball's ever seen. The guy that signed Dusty Baker, Dale Murphy, Tom Glavin. Gus Lobel. Well, what he felt was staring at. I'm not a pole dancer. Welcome to the partnership committee. I want this. You'd be the only woman. My father is a baseball scout. I grew up around men who swore, drank, and farted. Get me a damn check. Trust me, I can handle it. <laughs> you need to meet with a specialist. How are you going to scout this guy if your eyes aren't right? Keith, where does Trouble with the Curve? I normally ask my guests where does you know the movie we're doing rank on you know their their favorite sports movies. 
Keith, is this the worst baseball movie of all time? Uh, it's the worst I've ever seen. Uh, maybe there's a worse one out there somewhere, but I have never seen. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen a sports movie, period, that is as excruciatingly painful to watch as Trouble with the Curve. It's heinous. Um, I think even if even if you don't realize how baseball poor it is, which is what we're going to focus on, I don't think it's a very good movie in general. No, um, I agree. It got 51% on Rotten Tomatoes, so that's without taking into account the uh, how baseball poor it is. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Trouble with the Curve is a 2012 baseball drama that revolves around an aging baseball scout whose daughter joins him on a scouting trip. And yeah, it is it is excruciatingly painful. Uh, to go a little deeper into the plot, uh, Clint Eastwood plays an aging scout who is uh, struggling with something with his vision. Um, they don't they don't nail it down. It's a glaucoma or something, you know, along those lines. But he's struggling with his vision, so he can't really see. And it's nine. It's set nine days before the Major League Baseball draft. The team he works for has the second pick, and they're sending him to scout for the first time the player they might take with the second pick. Keith, uh, you have a background. Uh, you, you worked in the uh, Toronto Blue Jays uh, office. And could you, where is a Major League Baseball team, especially one with a second pick, where are they at nine days before the draft and far their, as far as their board and what their selection process looks like? Yeah, this, this, this is the first of many, many, many baseball things they get wrong in this movie. Uh, nine days before the draft... We would, and I think this this is generalizable to all teams. First of all, by that point, we're we're done scouting players. We've seen them all. Uh, we're probably in meetings by that point. We would sometimes start as far as ten days out, which be, by which I mean uh, those of us in the uh, in the front office who were involved in the draft, including myself, uh, scouting director, and the national cross checkers would all go up to Toronto and start the meetings and start building the board. And at some point, a few days later, we'd bring in the area scouts, and, and every, we would typically have the whole staff there for the draft. Um, but there is no, so let's say that, that we never picked as high as second. We did pick sixth at one point, the, uh, the year we selected Ricky Romero. By the time we got to the draft, we had seen Romero that spring alone, something close to 15 times. I think he made 14 or 15 starts. He might have missed one start. I think somewhere in there. I don't know that we saw every single start we'd seen him. So one, the idea that the area scout has been sitting on his ass the whole spring and hasn't gone to see the best player in his area who's under consideration for the number two pick is just wrong. Second, the idea that nobody else from the scouting department bothered to go see the player. Really? You knew he was a possibility for the number two pick because pop-up guys don't end up, they don't pop up nine days before the draft. You, you, you didn't cross check him. You didn't send your scouting director. You didn't send your general manager. Mike Hazen is the GM for the Diamondbacks. They pick 16th. He's been out seeing players for a month already. He's the general manager. You think if the Diamondbacks pick second that Mike Hazen wouldn't bother to go see the player? And and then on top of, of all of that is that then they have the conversation in the draft room about trading the pick. The draft and trade comment. I have that right? yeah, I have that in my notes. It's awful. Oh, good. Yes, which Awful. you can't do and would have taken three seconds on the Google to find out you can't do that in baseball. 
I think it's needless to say they did not have any sort of consultant on uh, in the in the the production room and the on definitely not the screenwriter. They had no sort of consultant (laughs) that they ran anything by. I mean, just to just to kind of relate the situation, uh, we're recording this at the end of March. You're probably gonna you're probably listening to this episode. I think I'm it, planning to have it go out mid April. Um, Keith, right now you're in Oregon and you were you were scouting uh, the two guys who have potential to be the top you know in the top five in this year's draft. We're about a little you know little over two months away from the draft. How many? How many baseball personnel were there in this two months before the draft? Uh, I saw, actually, at that game in Oregon, I only saw about a half dozen because of rain. Because I think people directed elsewhere because they were afraid it was going to get rained out. Um, I was at Arizona State on Wednesday night and saw about 15 scouts or so that day um, when I was at a Carter Stewart outing a couple of Wednesdays ago. That's probably about three weeks ago now, right? Uh, two and a half weeks ago, let's say. Uh, there were 15 to 20 scouts there. The night before at Matt Allen, there were probably about 40 scouts up there. Uh, so we've, we've been out and about. And there are going to be some matchups coming up. I know there's one in Florida. Matt Allen goes up against, uh, I think it's Riley Green, April 25th. There are going to be... 60, 70, maybe 80 scouts there easily um, because you'll have all the area scouts there and you'll have a bunch of national cross checkers and some directors and maybe a GM or two will pop in at that point. So there will be crowds. I mean, frankly, if the weather had been good this past weekend, there would have been a lot of people there because it's Rutschman is possibly the number one pick. Vaughn could potentially be the number one pick and he's probably going to go in the, both guys are going in the top five would have been a great matchup. It's just, and they did play, but the, it rained almost up until first pitch. So I was glad I ended up going, but at the same time, I understood why anybody redirected elsewhere. In this movie, the, uh, the character that they're focused on, and we'll talk a lot about the, is a high schooler named Bo Gentry, who the Braves, who, who Clint Eastwood's team, they're considering taking with the, their number two overall pick. They're hoping the Red Sox, well, they're, uh, a guy in their front office is hoping the Red Sox pass on him. They're just now sending him, uh, you know, nine days before the draft. I I took a kind of a comparative in just where he lived and draft status was Austin Beck in 2017. He's from the Carolina area. Um, I think went fifth to the A's, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Went went very high to the A's. How many? How many? What do you think the crowd was at his final high school game or final game before the draft? No, I would get, I wasn't there. I saw him early May. I know for a fact, sorry, not early May, early April. I know for a fact, a week after I saw him, there was a double up where scouts could go in, see back in the afternoon, and then drive and see Mackenzie Gore, who went third in that draft that evening. I am almost positive, my memory, so hopefully I'm correct on this. I'm almost positive there were 60 plus scouts at those outings. Um, And that's because that was getting towards the end of their season. So they would be, I mean, that's your last look. It's even more so for a pitcher, obviously, because you want to make sure he doesn't walk off the mound holding his elbow or shoulder or something. But we're all aware when these guys' seasons are ending. And we're, you know, if, you th- if that guy's on your consideration list, even if you think it's a long shot, you are absolutely going to have personnel there. Every team that might consider taking him. If this guy was considered, Bo Gentry was supposedly a top, one of the top players in the draft, 
you know what? I'll actually give you a better example. I'm sorry. I'm like going to redirect myself, but I actually have been at a, a game just like that. I was at a game near the very end of Byron Buxton's senior season. He was in consideration at one and two, uh, for sure. And, uh, I went, I made the ridiculous trip to Baxley, Georgia, and there were folks from multiple people, teams one, two, three, and five that year. And there was nobody below that simply because they didn't believe he'd get there. That was the only consideration was this guy's not getting out of the top five picks. And if I remember correctly, four of the top five clubs were there and they all had multiple people in attendance to see him. And he put on a pretty good show that night, actually, as I remember correctly. And that got him uh, pot number two by my beloved Minnesota Twins. Mm -hmm. And they were there. Mm -hmm. As well, they should have been. Um, <laughs> the last kind of plot generalization or, or just thing about the movie, you know, that we we get to about just kind of the scouting community in general. All the scouts you're mentioning, all the people coming to these games, are they all old borderline retirees with bad eyes and essentially old crotchety men that the movie makes them out to be? Because everyone aside from... I think Justin Timberlake's character, uh, who plays a young up-and-coming scout, is just an old man in his you know 70s at the earliest. Yeah, uh, those people do exist. I, I do know a few scouts like that. Um, they are the minority. Uh, a lot more scouts are younger than I am. Uh, I'm 45 for the moment. Uh, I will still be 45 when this podcast airs, actually. Uh, they're... Yes, there are some of those older scouts, and I have no particular issue with older scouts. You and I, I think, are going to sort of rag on these character, these these very poorly drawn stock characters. It's, yeah, it's definitely a caricature right. of of what an actual scout is. Very much so. Older scouts, there's a reason. There is an actual benefit, I believe, a very tangible, probably something that you could you could um, you could try to measure in some sense to having scouts with you know, a few decades under their belts because they've seen so many players and their minds, you know, if they're, if, if you consider them to be good evaluators, which I also think means that they're good observers, they're going to start to, to pick up patterns in players. And this is what scouting is, right? You're not, yes, we're evaluating individual tools, but you're also trying to draw on that mental memory bank of other players that you've seen of other, you know, this, this player, reminds me of these few other players. This player fits into a certain archetype of player and think about what the past histories are of those players and success or failure rates of, of certain categories of players. Um, you know, that's why you often hear uh, player cops give me, give me a comparison for the player. And I don't, I don't love doing that because I think it tends, particularly in my job, I think it tends to draw readers into, um, you know, sort of a false sense of accuracy, but we can talk about sort of general categories of players. I often talk about, um, this one is less of a, of a scouting thing, a little bit more of an analytical thing, but the, the poor track record of high school players, high school position players drafted and signed out of the state of Mississippi because the caliber of, of uh, high school baseball in Mississippi is so poor. Well, scouts are doing the same kind of thing, except they're doing it probably subconsciously and doing it uh, because of other say, physical characteristics or mechanical characteristics around players. We don't see any of that in this film. Like you said, these are these these old men are caricatures. They're crotchety and they're they're supposed to have some sort of magic woo that allows them to tell when a player is good or not good, even if at one point they're all watching the position player from the wrong side of the stands. And they know better than the computers, which is the the main theme of this movie. It's it's I, I like to refer to it as kind of a 
a baby boomer baseball fan's wet dream is that the mm-hmm. computers and the stats are wrong. And uh, which is you, you'll see that a lot on uh, old person Twitter talking mm-hmm. about, especially in especially in your mentions. Um, yes. You know, yeah, it's a lot of many, how, many sports writers. Many yeah, that we, we get a lot of that old, almost exclusively older, older than I am, white men railing against analysts, analytics, sabermetrics, numbers, math, any of the above. Which they, they set that up to be the bad guy, when in reality, I think in the scouting community, they at this point, they work hand in hand. Yes. Because, you know, and statistics obviously matter, but uh, an in-person look matters too. It's why you fly all over the country to look at these guys. So Very much so. The... They in this movie they try to they try to act like scouts and seeing players in person and you know going to high school games and watching these guys are being pushed out when in reality it's still an absolute necessity especially because and another thing this movie completely fails at is there's no more irrelevant stats than high school baseball stats they're irrelevant based on competition especially because any guy who's getting scouted is far and above the best player. In, in his area normally, by far. Yes, yes. He's typically, he may be the best, but you know, for, for what we're talking about at this level in, the, in the, the fake world of trouble with the curve, he's the best player in the state. So yeah, absolutely. if he's not hitting 680, something is wrong. Um, and I guess that's the, one, the only time I would ever say that the player stats might be meaningful is that you know, if a player like this isn't destroying his competition, then there, then we might ask the question of again of whether there is something, something is amiss. Uh, but teams are not. Teams have never looked at high school stats except for maybe. I can think of a, a handful of examples where, and I might have, I would even mention from time to time. You know, when a high school position player like this, be striking out a particularly high percentage of his at bats. Because that's just alarming. Now, if he's not striking out, that's problematic. But if he's not striking out, that's not necessarily an indicator that he's good, right? The, the stats are not going to tell us that he's good. It's only going to tell us, you know, that there isn't a major problem here, and that that is really the extent of it. Now, teams are using data on high school players, like exit velocity and launch angle and spin rate, and that that has become part of the vernacular of scouting at the amateur and pro levels. That's not what this movie is talking about. I don't want to even pretend to, to, to I don't even want to think about giving this movie uh, any more credit for intelligence than it has earned, which is none. They're talking about old school back of the baseball card stats. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to sit, you, it, it is, they, they basically built a pile of straw men so they could set them on fire. And I mean, that is probably an apt metaphor for this movie because it is really like just like watching something burn. It's horrendous. And um, and we'll talk about a little bit later how we would improve it. And I think bringing in stuff like spin rate and and stats that actually matter. Um, I mean, improving this thing is, you know, like like putting Difficult. a new coat of paint on a shack. But let's let's get into what I think will be the shortest category of the night. Let's start let's start getting into some plot points. What worked? Did anything in this movie work or feasibly made sense for you? Not for me. Um, now, granted, I saw this when it came out. I have not seen it again since because why would I do that to no, myself? No, yeah, you shouldn't. I, I did a rewatch uh, for the both of us, and holy, holy shit. So yeah, bad. it is so bad. I mean, they took Amy Adams, who is a fantastic actress and a beautiful actress with 
and I mean, she is at some point she's going to win an Oscar and made her uninteresting and not even particularly. Why do you cast her if you're not going to take advantage of anything she does well? It, it is such a it is a waste of a talent. I mean, whatever Clint Eastwood at his point in his career, he can make whatever choices he wants. Yes, he has done some great work in the past. I think he's turned into a caricature himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they took Amy Adams, who was just fantastic, and who not long afterwards would give what I thought was an Oscar-worthy performance in Arrival. She wasn't nominated for that, but it was superb across the board. So here's an example of something she's, we know what she's capable of delivering. Part of me just couldn't understand why she would agree to do this movie in the first place. But the fact that they can take her and make her boring is absolutely shocking to me and so emblematic of of what is wrong and just how brain dead this movie was how brain dead specifically the script is because basically that's the thing too because i mean i understand it's title of your show everything that's wrong with this movie pretty much comes down to the script this is not you know it's not like it's poorly shot or or poorly um it's not like you know the the i've seen movies where the the score was a problem or particularly elevated the movie. Everything that's wrong with this movie is because the script was written by a moron. Because on paper, it should have worked. You have Clint Eastwood, who is, he's Clint Eastwood, but Amy Adams is great. Timberlake has his moments. And, and just I in his find career. him very charismatic. I do. Yeah, I know yeah. some people don't care for him as an actor. I think he's a pretty, he's got a good screen presence to him, but he's clearly only going to be as good as the material. And here the material is crap and he plays down to it. I mean, you see the the juxtaposition between him and the social network and him in this movie. Yes. And yeah, it's, social network. I mean, it's crazy. The, yeah, social network was, I think it's the best thing I've seen him done, de- seen him do in any movie. And a part of it is that he's playing a slightly different character. Um, he And he really, like, he gets a character with some some tooth to it, and he leans into it. Like, he really plays up that it's, it's, he's, I'm a charismatic actor. I'm playing a guy who's, charismatic to the point of maybe being kind of unctuous or a little sleazy maybe and he just absolutely leans right into it and it's and it is really cool when he's in the movie there's a different energy to it and he actually i thought did a great job with the speed of sorkin's dialogue in there sorkin dialogue is different um it's very rapid timberlake, very rapid i thought timberlake did the best job with it of anyone and here he is just dull and kind of annoying and he gets fed a script full of extremely tired baseball cliches. Very much so. And then, of course, they're setting it up. So you want to see him get his comeuppance. And he's going to get his comeuppance at the end. And it's, well, wait a minute. No, he's the, no, he's, wait a minute. Why am I rooting against that guy? You don't even explain to me I'm rooting against that guy. And the guy you should be rooting against is the old asshole who's, who ultimately is going to come out triumphant in the end. But he's actually the problem. Yeah, we'll we'll discuss the just the ending in general. I have two things sports-wise that actually worked in this movie. It doesn't okay. make it any better of a movie. The the kid she finds at the end, the pitcher Rigo. I I I appreciate when a sports movie gets a guy who could, actually looks like he's played this guy legitimately did. His name is Jay Galloway. He doesn't have many other acting credits, uh but he played uh high school baseball, he played college football at Sanford. He's an athlete. I buy that raw delivery. It looks like he's thrown a baseball before. 
Yes. Well, have you seen, um, I don't know if you've done a show on this, but everybody wants some. Yes. Okay. So the, that Houston, the guy who was raw dog, raw dog. That's Houston streets, brother who actually played a little baseball. He Mm -hmm. briefly played in the Arizona rookie league. Guess what? They got an actual pitcher and they put him on the mound as well as the guy who plays Superman on Supergirl. I can't believe Tyler Hecklin. I think is his name. Guy, UC Irvine guy. Who play, he played in college, and it, at one point his Twitter bio said, "I'm an actor, but I'm still a baseball player at heart." Like they, they look like baseball players. They move like baseball players. They walk around like athletes. There is something. It's not that hard to find adult men who can move like baseball players because lots of men play baseball at least through the college level. They're good enough to replicate that on screen, and. You're right. Here in this case, they did get that that picture at the end is an excellent point. He did do that. One of the many, many things I like about Everybody Wants Some is that that looks like real baseball. When they actually Mm -hmm. do a baseball scene, it looks correct. Yeah. I mean, Everybody Wants Some is 100% a movie I'm going to do down the line, especially like, you know, I I played college baseball and it is very, it is very authentic, I think, in a a lot of ways. But yeah, they, but one of the authentic ways is they, they did get guys and that's where, I mean, the, the only other thing this, this will translate into one of maybe the biggest sin of this movie is that the one thing they got right, I think is making the, the character Bo Gentry is making him unlikable. I think, I think if you would have made him a good kid, mm-hmm. it, it would have been hard because you don't ever want to see a good kid fail. Right. Um, and you know, the, the climax of the movie is the the kid allegedly failing but i i think let's let's swing right into what didn't work and i think the number one thing that didn't work aside from the plot the just everything uh is the character bo gentry who if you're gonna make this guy if you're gonna say this is the number two pick you gotta make him look like you have to nail this casting choice he needs to look he needs to be an incredible looking baseball player. And he is everything but scout Bo Gentry for me. <laughs> well, if I remember correctly, he's kind of a fat kid, right? Yeah. He's a bad, bad body guy. Yeah. He was supposed to be a five tool play. They they love to say five tool. That was another one. And I mean, trust me, five tool gets thrown around a ton in the real world. It's usually wrong. There are five tools to be a five tool player. You must have all of them. Preferably more than just a little bit of all of them. And yet this kid, I'm not sure he has more than one. I think he's supposed to have power. He sure as hell can't run looking like that. No. And no. there's nothing about him that looks first roundy. The best prospect I can ever remember seeing myself in, let's just stick to the 13 years I've been at ESPN who looked even a little bit like this kid was Daniel Vogelbach. Vogelbach. Oh man, he was a unit. He I mean, is, he still is, but in he, high school, he was a unit. Oh, he was a chonk. He was, he, he was overweight at the time, um, which is, you know, I'm not fat shaming anybody. That's a legitimate issue as you wonder what a player's body is going to look like as he ages, certainly. But he had a good swing. He could hit and he had power. The problem is you were looking at a born DH. There was zero chance this guy was going to play in the field anywhere. So at what point in the draft do you consider taking a player like that? Well, Bo Gentry is like Daniel Bogelbach without the hit tool. So 
we're not talking about this guy in the first year. We're not talking about him on day one. We're probably not talking about him at all. And yet they hold this player up to us and that this kid's the second pick in the draft. You want to show me, if you told me I'm writing a script about a, a player who is highly coveted by scouts, but it's going to turn out in the end that he can't hit a breaking ball. Because, sorry for the spoiler, but it is in the <laughs> title of the movie. And so, okay, that kid that I'm thinking of is going to be 6'3", with an Adonis-like athletic body, graceful movements. He can run. He can throw. He's going to have quick hands. So there's going to be some bat speed. You could make him look like anything. You know, he could be white. He could be African-American. Anything like that. But he's going to be, like, tall and graceful, like fluid, you know, the way that you just see that guy move and you think, I don't know what sport he plays, but he's an athlete. That's what that guy needs to look like. If you want this movie to work, you have to crush this casting decision. And they completely whiffed, no pun intended. The kid has an awful swing. And I'm not like, I'm not at fault of the kid for taking this job, but he's clearly not a baseball player. He has an awful swing. One of the, the, my least favorite parts in this movie is um, there, the scene where the the opposing pitcher struggling on the mound, his coach tells him, you know, just to to walk the guy. Don't give it, don't give him anything to hit. He gets irritated and throws one, and uh, and Bo Gentry takes a swing. And if you've played even a second of baseball, watched a second of baseball ever, you know that that ball off the bat is a shallow fly to right field, and it mm-hmm. goes way out in left field. Right. Which I think is just the cardinal sin of baseball movies because it is not hard. I mean, hold a casting call at every college baseball team in the country and find a kid who can read lines decently and looks the part, and it is better than what they did for this movie. Absolutely. Well, again, it comes back to like, the guys from Everybody Wants Some where they got Tyler Hecklin, turns out was a, was a decent – I actually talked to a scout who saw him in college and said, yeah, he was a pretty good college baseball player. It does, it's not a pro career, but that's a, certainly a compliment. It meant that he looked the part was able to hit a little bit and he's a good looking guy that's it that's all we're looking for in this part kid doesn't have a whole lot of lines he just has to stand up there swing the bat look the part and and again if you're talking about this archetype of player this player exists um the player that's as written not as cast who turns out just can't hit a quality breaking ball that happens all the time actually it's not that crazy a plot idea but instead they they took the wrong kind of kid the kid i'm talking about scouts are going to salivate over a kid like that He's going to be some amazing athlete. He's going to be a multi-sport guy, in fact. That's the thing. He comes – he's from somewhere in Georgia, and he's got a two-sport commitment. Was he perhaps a Nebraska commit who went to the Royals? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Star- Starling could throw a little bit. He passed on pitch as an amateur. He used to run better. He definitely had power. Turned out he he had he, he had swing issues, but it eventually comes down to the same thing, which is – he had a lot of other tools and he couldn't hit. I, I can do, I've seen these players. I see these. I see players like this. Well, I see fewer high school players now over the summer than I used to. But used to. I would see players like this all the time. They come out all the time. And for whatever, there's so many reasons why guys can't hit a breaking ball. I mean, if you can hit a breaking ball pretty well, you probably and and you can hit a fastball, you're going to end up in the big leagues. So this is not a crazy concept. They just they couldn't have missed. It comes back to what you and I are going to say this over and over again. All they had to do was find somebody who knew the game a little bit. Anybody. And would have said, anybody, anybody. I was available. Nobody called me. 
we could if we could have you and I could have gotten together and said, nope, 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 don't change this, change that. All right, no, don't cast that guy. Definitely. I was in college desperate for guy. money. I would have I would have yes, been their con right? I would have been their consultant for like twenty five bucks. <laughs> it would have been the best twenty five dollars they had ever spent. Well, speaking of twenty five bucks, another Bo Gentry related thing that they just completely botch is after the game, after one of the first games, his dad is saying, you know, no autographs. He signs it before the games for 25 bucks a pop. Surprise. He's now ineligible. He cannot go play in the NCAA. He has no draft leverage at all. So it like it's just it's something that would never happen. And how do you you don't even have to know baseball to know that that's not OK. That stuff's in the news all the time. Players get play, NCAA players get declared ineligible or suspended for accepting like a five dollar meal voucher. It, it, this again, it's how did they not know or do, or worse, they knew and they didn't care, which actually feels a bit more likely, especially in this case. Glad you brought that up because I totally forgot that scene. But you're right. That is something that's like, again, just a basic detail. Again, you're, you are trying to cast a, in any movie. You're trying to cast a little bit of a spell over the audience so that they'll just roll with you, that you're, you know, when whether it's based on a true story or otherwise, there are going to be things in here where you kind of have to speed things along, change a timeline. Th this movie just makes so many fundamental mistakes that there was no point where I was caught up in it at all during this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there are little like I don't want to say white lies, but there are adjustments you can make. Uh, a couple episode a couple weeks ago with uh, with JJ Cooper, we did Sugar. Um, they, they line up the structure of the minor leagues as single A, double A, triple A. They don't really mention rookie or they go complex, single A, double A, triple A. They don't really mention yes. short season or high A. That's something it's not a deal killer at no, all. It's not necessary. Yeah. Some of this stuff is, I mean, is, is outrageous. I mean, I, I legitimately have, I mean, mind I have, I have so many notes. It's hard to, it's hard to structure this cause it's, you know, we go here, we talk about Bo Gentry, that brings us to something else. I mean, it's every aspect. This movie is just a web of of bullshit. It's awful. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um let's uh I, I've got something that's it's Bo Gentry related. It's an it's another thing that if you know you've ever if you've been around the game, if you know anything about baseball, if you know anything about sports in general, um I mentioned in something that worked is is him being unlikable and and that's a you know that was the move uh to you know to make this work is if you you can't have the audience rooting for this character to be successful and make Clint Eastwood's character look wrong but he is excessively he's excessively unlikable more than any I've I've played with some really good baseball players I played with some really arrogant baseball players and he and the team in general they're all unlikable. There's a his last game, the last game you see him play, hits a walk off home run um, after basically threatening a kid that he better get on base so he can win this game. When the kid comes around, he hits a home run, so the kid on first comes around to score, and the entire team essentially big leagues him. No one high fives him or anything. They're just waiting for Bo, and that is something that on any team would never ever happen. There would no. never ever be a kid coming to score where he wouldn't get dapped up and be right there there's just it's it's not it, again it's not a thing and it the movie is worse for it i don't understand why his all his teammates have to be jerks too it it defies it defies you know any sort of logical explanation it's funny i just i just looked up the actor's name because i could not remember it save my life it's joe massengill who i guess would be 
great casting to play a total douche. Yes. It was, uh, uh, he is spot on. Um, you're right. None of that, not, not one bit of that is realistic at all. He would be shunned by his teammates. He would be disliked by scouts. Scouts are people too. They, and make, first of all, makeup in general, I, I mean, you're aware of this, but for listeners, like, Makeup is absolutely something that scouts are expected to establish. They're expected to learn the makeup of any players they're considering for the draft, recommending for the draft. That is the area scout's job specifically. So in this case, uh, this would be Clint Eastwood's job. He would have had to do a home visit with the player and his parents. To, he probably would have had a questionnaire. He would have had to ask the player to fill out. Uh, he would have spent, probably spent up to an hour, sometimes more, but usually not, getting to know the player. Uh, and all 30, well, all teams considering the player, maybe not all 30, but all, all teams considering taking that player would have spent some time getting to know him. You know what? If he was a jerk, that's going to affect his standing. If teammates aren't going to like him, if he's going to come in and cause trouble in the clubhouse because he's a bad kid, because he's an entitled kid, he's arrogant, like, it doesn't mean you don't take him, but it's certainly a consideration. And the movie never even seems to acknowledge the fact that this kid's character is going to be a problem and is going to work against him both with scouts and ultimately if, if, and when he would sign once he got into professional baseball. Yeah. It's, they do that solely for the viewer. They don't, they don't acknowledge it at all. And that's, I mean, it's a huge misstep. Uh, it's some, let's, let's table that. I, I do want to discuss that later when we talk about, you know, th- maybe, you know, things they could have done differently. L- let's go into how they, how they approach stats versus versus the reality we kind of touched on it that they need to work hand in hand in this movie they've got matthew lillard playing a guy named philip i don't know exactly what his job is they might say it in the <laughs> movie they, they might say that he's something he's involved with the draft process he's pushing for gentry and there's this one scene where he's on the phone with his like his scout spy that he sent out there to to look at him and he's just fawning over his stats he said oh he went three for three last night with you know he's just and he rips off what his OPS is and, and stuff like that. Um, you, you touched on earlier kind of what what stats they're actually looking for. When do stats start to matter? I, I would think stats, it's kind of on a scale of they matter the least in high school, obviously matter the most in the big leagues. Where are you where do you actually get concerned on what a guy's what a guy is hitting or what is what is you know a pitcher's walk rate is or something when is it is it all relative to age is it when when does that start to matter when would you know a guy having outrageous numbers at what age and where where would that actually matter i i think i touched on this just a little bit earlier in terms of you know if there's something very wrong in a high school player's stats you do want to know that right if a high school hitter is striking out a quarter of the time uh, against high school pitching, obviously, that's a problem. If a high school pitcher is walking, uh, you know, two batters every three innings, it doesn't mean you won't take him, but you've got to recognize what you're getting and maybe the magnitude of the control issues that he has. I mean, players like that, like that second example, do still get drafted. They just tend to get drafted lower and certainly lower today than they did 30 or 40 years ago. I, I come back to, you know, Bobby Witt Jr. is in this draft class. Bobby Witt Sr., was the third pick in in the draft out of college. And if you go see his college stats, there's no way that guy gets taken in the top 10 today, given his walk rate. So we're at least aware of stuff like that. But the idea that you'd get excited about it, let me, let me take a step back. Having sort of kind of been 
that person that 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 Philip. Uh, when I was with the Jays, I was at least the guy in I was the guy in the draft room with the laptop. You know, I was the guy who was who I had all the I had all the college stats we could get a hold of, summer league stats. Um, we were using them. We were using them to try to filter certain types of players out. We were using them to identify players who maybe were just getting under scouted, um, who might be value for us in some later rounds. But trust me, that Philip is not advocating for taking a high school player. Period. If you are, if you were strictly focused on getting the player with good stats, you want the college guy for the reason you just said. College stats are a lot more meaningful than high school stats. You can use some basic tools for statistical analysis. I'm talking about the pre-TrackMan era. You could identify certain college players with greater likelihood of success. You couldn't do that with high school stats. You couldn't do that at all. And you are correct, by the way. It is, a, it is a, some sort of sliding scale where the closer you get to the majors, I, would, I have argued, closer you get to the majors, the more valuable the stats become and the less important a lot of scouting becomes. I don't think there's ever a point where you wouldn't want the traditional evaluation at all. But if you wanted to try to do without it at any level, teams largely don't have just major league scouts who are only responsible for watching major league games. We have tons of video of those guys, and we have tremendously detailed statistics on those guys. You, re- you redirect your scouting resources to lower levels. Uh, and, but in, and in this case, your scouts... Your scouts are the your amateur scouts are the only information you have on high school players. You at least have some stats to work with on college players, and the the Philip character should have been advocating for a college guy. Yeah, they make him the big bad, and it is it is painful. Yes, painful to watch. They bring in Bo. We'll we'll just the movie obviously called Trouble with the Curve. You said earlier, you know, the big thing is he Bo cannot hit a curveball. First of all, would you be able to hear? If someone could not hit a curveball, because that no. is the that's how they make this movie is so arrogant with the old scouts are right about everything. And they they want Clint Eastwood to have this redemption moment as this genius. And he can hear that Bo Gentry has a hitch in his swing and therefore says he cannot hit a curveball. One, if I'm not mistaken, a hitch is a mechanically correctable. It is a flaw, but it is something that can be mechanically corrected. Could you hear it? No, you couldn't hear it. You have to see it. But like anything mechanical, there's always the possibility to correct it. A hitch is, typically we're talking about a hand hitch. It'll just be called a hitch, right? You just, it is, if you watch, the best example I can think of uh, for, for listeners who can't see me standing in my hotel room trying to demonstrate it to a mirror, uh, Hunter Pence is probably one of the best hitters we've seen with a, with a pronounced hitch. When he gets set, he starts to swing, he moves his hands on the bat, on the handle of the bat, straight, almost straight down before beginning his swing. That's a hitch. It's the best easily recallable example I can think of, of what a hitch looks like. You cannot hear it, certainly, unless you're a bat. Um, And I, I mean the flying rodent thing, not the actual baseball bat. And yeah, it's it is correctable. It becomes yet. And, and by the way, there are some hitters who never need to have it corrected. It's another variable that goes into the quote unquote equation, which is not actually an equation, but it goes into the consideration of where you would take that player in the draft. It might affect your projection of his hit tool, or you might separately consider it if you're trying to grade out a player's mechanics, but it is not an automatic kill. And again, it is not audible. And that is their, I mean, it's, it essentially leads to the climax of the movie. It's, it's mm-hmm. what leads to the big matchups. It's 
Clint Eastwood's character, Gus, he's so certain this kid has a hitch, can't hit a curveball. And then mean stat guy, Philip, only sees his stats and thinks he's great. They bring him out, they they draft him, they bring him out. He's throwing, uh, you know, he's, he's hitting BP like first-round picks do. You know, they bring him out before a game, let him hit some BP, you know, put on the jersey, whatever. We'll, we'll shelf the, uh, the concept of bringing out the random kid that she found in the hotel, you know, throwing in the hotel parking lot to come right. face the first-round pick in on the mound, which is, I just, I, I just want to tear my <laughs> eyes out. But if... How long until, you know, because right away they decide, oh, Gentry's a bust. We shouldn't have taken him. They fire Phillip over it because he whiffs on a few curveballs. And, you know, they say the kid pitching to him, they say, oh, he looks like a Sandy Koufax mixed with Randy Johnson and Steve Carlton. So obviously they think he's pretty good. Looks like Sandy Koufax. Yep. Combined with Steve Carlton and Randy Johnson, that's not even his best pitch. Show him the curve. saw this Gentry's got potential but he's not number one pick and yeah. he's giving he's giving Gentry some trouble with the curveball and right away they decide he's you know he's done as we discussed earlier high school really elite high school players there's not a lot of them they're not usually surrounded by a lot of high school you know other elite players other elite pitching it's likely when they get into pro balls the first time they're seeing regular, you know, fastballs in the mid nineties, you know, breaking stuff that, that is far beyond what they've seen. How soon after a guy is drafted, do you even, do you even worry at all? That's an excellent question. Um, that I don't think has a single answer. I will certain, I will at least say that there are, there are situations where you're concerned immediately. You would not necessarily be concerned at the workout he does on the field when you sign him. If a player goes out and just lays an egg that first summer, you would start to worry. You wouldn't panic. And I'm try- as I'm, I'm sort of slowing down as I'm saying this too, because I'm trying to think, is there a scenario I've seen that was just so bad? I think of it. The, uh, the late, unfortunately, Ryan Bolden was a high pick of the Angels, who was just an athlete who didn't know how to. I mean, he was a good example, just a great athlete. He was like an all everything Mississippi high school kid. Uh, pretty sure he's Mississippi. He was football, basketball, anything he could play. You know, he was good at at that level. He got out in a pro ball, and he'd never seen a decent breaking ball in his life. And he couldn't hit at all. And he was striking out close to fifty percent of the time. He might have struck out fifty percent of the time his first summer. Well, when that happens, it's like, you know what? That's a bust. You don't necessarily release the guy. But at that point, you think we probably messed up on that. That's about as an extreme example, an extreme an example as I can think of. But typically, especially for a high school kid, when he's 17, 18, occasionally he's 19, give him a couple of years. There's always a chance he'll improve. Um, the first summer can be a, a huge transition for a lot of guys. But the conceit of this movie is that they watch him try to hit I mean, basically, it's like live BP there. 10 to 15 pitches, really. Right, and we're done. Oh, my God, we screwed up. 
what the hell was your process that 10 to 15 pitches after the draft makes you realize that you made a mistake? I mean, that's the, that like, this should be, there's like a business leadership movie in here. So let's, let's talk about process before <laughs> we, right. How, how, if that's all it took after the draft, how little work did you put in before the draft? It, couldn't you have just done those 10 to 15 pitches before the draft? Never occurred to you to have him face live BP? Bring him in for a workout. Teams do that all the time with players they're going to draft in the first round. Bring him into the stadium. Let him come have a workout. That's uh, That does not exist in the world of this movie. Yeah, I mean, the biggest the biggest thing is the lack of prep. I think, I think it's, I mean, there are a lot of sins in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the casting sin of Bo, you know, Bo Gentry, the general baseball inaccuracies. And I mean, and there's a million of them, but it, the lack of prep is crazy. It's crazy. I mean, and, and it's, we'd just be beating a dead horse talking about it, mm-hmm. but nine days before the draft, just having him be such an unknown, we were talking a little bit before we recorded that they would have seen this guy for almost two years now, you know, and it's seen him against every manner of competition. They could possibly see him in his travel ball, his high school team. They'd see him in workouts. They'd bring him in. And it's, I mean, again, it's, they just needed a consultant. They make it incredibly unrealistic. And the, you know, the plot that leads, you know, he has the he has the miserable live BP session, apparently facing the, the next Sandy Koufax. So essentially, it's like he's taking live BP against Mackenzie Gore, you know, the uh, the the Padres top left handed pitching prospect, which would be a, a tough bet for anyone. If Mackenzie oh, God, Gore is just yes. is just ripping off that breaking ball on you. And, you know, especially an 18 year old kid who hasn't played a lot of good competition in, um, in North Carolina. One other plot point about the the preparation and the draft process that this movie completely botches is you get an insight into the Red Sox draft room because Timberlake's character, the Red Sox have the first pick. Timberlake's character is this young Red Scout. He was an ex player who you know blew his arm out. That's kind of realistic. That's at least you know yep. pitcher bl- pitcher blowing his arm out. That's a thing. But he asks Gus, you know, are you guys going to take him? Is that something? Would you? And and I could be completely wrong about this. Do you see scouts sharing information like that when the draft is such a crucial process to competing? Uh, not at the scout level necessarily. It's not that it's unthinkable, by the way. It's it's it is possible. Uh, that stuff often it'll happen very close to the draft. The GMs will talk. All right, hey, we pick behind you. You know who are are you going to take him? Because we just need to know if he might be available for our pick, and do we need to? start negotiating with him or his advisor uh, because money is such a huge part of the draft now in, the, in this bonus pool process, which didn't exist at the time in the movie. Scouts individual. Well, I, I don't even think a scout could say Gus could not say, yeah, we're taking him. That's not your call, buddy. You don't make the pick. Yeah. It also seems like there's three people in there making the decision, right? It's like Gus and uh, Philip with the computer Mm-hmm. And John Goodman's character, kinda, who I think he's the director of scouting, but he also doesn't, or the GM, I don't know, he's something, but he also doesn't seem like he has any sort of decision-making power at all. And then there's uh, the, the Terminator, Robert Patrick. Right. Who, uh, you know, I guess makes the final call, but... Right, yeah. And by the way, who would have seen the player? Yeah. When you worked, you were self-professed guy with a computer in Toronto. Did did you have to go out and see any of those players, or is it realistic that Philip might not have gone to see those players? I think it's realistic that Philip might not have seen those players. That still would be true today. I don't think 
I would not generalize this to all 30 teams, but in general, the guys running the analytics department or the guy, guy or girl or woman in the analytics department who might be working specifically in college stats might be multiple. Um, they're not typically going out and seeing the players. They can. I've seen guys who, from R&D departments. I say guys, and I'm actually, I should be gender neutral here because there are women, plenty of women I know in analytics departments. These people do go out occasionally and see the players. They're often doing this more for their own edification to begin maybe learning a little bit about that process or simply to accompany the scouts, get a different experience, to, to, to just be able to see the player so that they can better understand the discussion that they might hear about the player from the scouting perspective. That's not impossible. When I was with the Jays, I typically did not go out in the springs unless it were convenient for one reason or another uh, for me to go see some amateur players. I would do a lot of stuff over the summer because living in New England at the time, I did. I could go down to Cape Cod. Collegiate national team might come through. I would see, and we were only looking at college players. So I would often get looks at a lot of those guys. But my contribution to the scouting discussion in the draft room was generally very, very limited. I did sort of know my place and understand that I was sitting among scouts who had a lot more experience and my job was there more to listen. And if I could contribute a little bit, say, well, I saw the player and I saw X, Y, and Z, I would say that, but recognize no one was going to weigh my input the way that they weighed that of scouts who'd watch these players all spring, nor should they have done so. The last really plot related thing I want to get into just, just stuff that just kind of moves the movie along is uh, same with the draft. The Red Sox, they're going off what the Brave Scouts said, factoring that into their pick. You see them in their war room. There's three minutes before they have to make the number one pick in the draft, which they've known since the end of the previous baseball season that they have the number one pick. And they're basing their decision off, well, are the, are the Braves going to take this guy? If the Braves are off him, we're off him. I mean, I don't even think I have to ask you. Like, how, how fucking crazy is that? Uh, it's absolutely batshit insane that does not happen at all um in fact i i remember sort of joking with my boss at the time in toronto in in 2000 must be 2003 that you know we sort of didn't want to let it be known that we were going to take aaron hill with our first round pick and i, I remember joking that no one else is going to change their pick because they think we're taking a guy it's not like the, the rockies were one of the teams drafting ahead of us I don't know if that was the Jeff Francis. I think Jeff Francis might have been a year before. But anyway, the point was, the Rockies, they, they have their own scouts. They've been out seeing players all spring. They don't care who we're taking. They only care who we're taking if we're ahead of them and might take the guy they want. But if you find out someone behind you wants the player, well, you know what? Like We're, we're not going to go change our – we're going to throw out what our scouts are now. Now our analysts and our scouts have concluded just because we heard that John Doe, some drafting three picks later, is going to take our guy. It just it, – it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I mean business, baseball can be a pretty screwed up business, but we're not that screwed up. And especially three minutes before you're going to take the first pick, you're oh, not yeah. still deciding. You've been negotiating you, with you that guy's know. team. You've probably, yes. got a bon- you've probably got a bonus number you're settled on. Yes. Those guys – we typically find out publicly five minutes before the pick, right? The, but they already knew. The Tigers were taking Casey Mize – I, they probably had that worked out days before the draft. And I think they knew a month before the draft, probably longer. Yeah, I think everyone. I think everyone knew by the beginning of April last year that Casey Mize was going one unless something happened to him. Exactly, he was clearly the best guy in the draft. That would, in cases where there is not clearly a best guy, for example, the Carlos Correa Byron Buxton draft. Either one of those guys could have conceivably gone one one. 
I think the Astros had worked that out. The Ast- people in the Astros draft room, other than the few involved in the actual decision, they did not know until the pick was submitted to Major League Baseball, maybe minutes before the rest of the world found out. But the Astros themselves, the decision makers, knew hours or days before who they were taking. And in that case, that was about, I don't know, that Korea may have been their first pick anyway, but there was a money angle because they saved a lot of money going under slot with him that allowed them to sign Lance McCullers Jr. and Rio Ruiz with later picks. And by not taking Mark Appel. Right. Which they took so, next year anyway. Who they but. took the next year, right? That was the correct. That's exactly correct. Um, they knew they knew they weren't taking Appel. I mean, that's the thing. The, the, these decisions were not, these decisions are not made in the heat of the moment. Maybe they were 30 or 40 years ago. I can't speak to that. And th- there were certainly a lot of high, dra- high pick mistakes. But that certainly has not been true at any point since I entered the business in 2002. It's another in a long line of, of points in this movie that kill how effective it could be. I mean, it, it, it's awful. In every previous episode, when we get to what doesn't work, a lot of it is, is fairly nitpicky stuff. And, you know, I even say that it's, oh, this this part was funny. This wasn't true. It's very rarely, you know, there are certain plot points that are just egregious. But this entire movie is based upon and it, at its core is just a completely egregious plot. It is mm-hmm. it is false from from the get go. But thankfully, there are lots of nitpicky things to hate too. And I, I've got a lot written down. First and foremost, uh, Scott Eastwood, who gets a cameo in Daddy's movie as a, a player he signed, he's terrible. Mm-hmm. He clearly has never played baseball ever. <laughs> <laughs> I want I. This is something that I don't know if it doesn't work or not. But uh, Scott Eastwood plays a guy named Billy Clark or something. I, I at this point I don't care to remember these names. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, he's a scout. He or he's a player that uh, he's in Low A Rome that Gus had signed for the Braves, um, and apparently he's struggling really bad. Gus goes to watch him hit. The guy is played by Scott Eastwood. He he strikes out to end the game on a terrible terrible swing and uh you know the way they're they're making gus look great is he's like oh he needs his family to come visit him he's lonely unlike you know all the other guys in the minor leagues who haven't seen their families in in, you know in three months and he gets the team to fly them out is that something this is something i'm not sure if it doesn't if it works or not frankly i didn't i've never worked in a major league baseball office is that something that would happen they would they would fly a kid's family out i had never heard of such a thing you know barring crisis family tragedy something like that i don't want to say it could never happen i mean obviously teams will certainly go to a uh some length to especially for a top prospect who might be struggling but i can't think of a situation where i ever actually heard of that happening mm-hmm. yeah i mean there have there have been cases of top prospects leaving and going home yes. and kind of uh tyler matzik when he he left to go kind of collect himself Stuff like that, but yeah, it it it's something they you know they use it as a plot point to oh you know got got that old intuition they they beat you over the head with the old guys are right and the, the stats are wrong, which is just just awful. Uh, another thing, this a little nitpicky. Gus goes to a a college game. I think they're at Georgia Tech. Uh, him and him and all the old scouts are there. He, he you know he gets there. He's struggling with his vision. He leaves fairly early. If you go to a college game, how long are you typically staying? Uh, it depends on the game and who I'm there to see. 
if I am there to say see a starting pitcher and that starting pitcher and, and only that starting pitcher and he's done after six innings, then I'm done after six innings. If I am there to see a well, Friday night, so I was there to see Rutschman and Vaughn and a couple of lesser players in the two lineups. I wasn't there to see any pitchers, but I was there, you know, I had four or five position players on my list to at least take a look at. Uh, I stayed till the last out. Um, and particularly because in this case, I knew I, you're constantly watching the lineup, right? What, is there a chance he's going to get another at-bat? Or what would be required to get him another at-bat? I knew Rutschman was probably going to come up in the ninth inning. He did come up in the ninth inning. I got to see him bat right-handed. He'd only batted left-handed so far uh, in the game until that at-bat in the ninth inning. So, uh, and so I was rewarded for staying also for doing my job, essentially. But uh, those are situations where you stay till the end. Now, I will say I went to see Hunter Bishop earlier in the week. Uh, at Arizona State, and they were up 15 to 1 after six innings, and he had had five plate appearances already, and I had two homers from him and a bunch of swings. It's like, you know what, I, I think I'm good, and I don't think I'm going to learn a lot from watching him to watching him beat up the bullpen for Cal Baptist. I left. It turned out that Hunter Bishop didn't bat again. They took him out of the game anyway. But at that point, I felt, you know, you're trying to gather information. At a certain point, you can, I think you can make the executive decision to say, um, he's destroying bad competition. I'm not going to learn anything further other than his swing mechanics, which I already had. The one thing I'll say is the idea that you might leave while the player in question, you know, pitcher in question, especially still in the game, still throwing, you stay until that pitcher is done. Cause there's always the chance that suddenly his velocity drops five miles an hour. He grabs his elbow. Something can happen. A lot less true with a position player with a position player. You can, you know, once, once your guy's done, you can be done. You'll see all the scouts. Kind of, um, you will see many of the scouts leave. I was not the only one who left the Bishop game because they were, like I said, it was a midweek competition, midweek game against a weak competition. Probably not the ideal scouting lot. I just happened to be in town for spring training anyway, so why not go see the guy who's probably a first rounder? The factor with the pitcher is what I was going to mention because one of the other scouts is Clint Eastwood gets up, and one of the other scouts says, Well, aren't you going to see what he's got? And Clint Eastwood, you know, arrogantly or crotchetly or whatever. So ah, I've seen everything he's got, or I know what he's got. If, if you're there to watch the guy, you're going to watch the whole outing. Yes. Um, you're absolutely going to watch till the last pitch. You, cause we, like I said, if only for injury, but also finding out how well a guy holds his stuff is also part of the job. Yeah. So just, just another, just, just one more strike against the movie. I, I don't, I don't really know if it, if that's the, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back there. Another thing that uh, that stuck out to me, do you, is there, I mean, have we missed anything on your end that, that, um, that you remember from this movie that, that irks you? Um, the trading of the draft picks was the one that was maybe the thing that most drove me up the wall. I'm actually checking my own. Oh yes, here we go. I'm going to read something off of my, um, off of my actual, of the, I wrote a blog post about this six, God, six and a half years ago. Gus's resume is an impossibility. He's a lifelong area scout in the Carolinas who signed Dusty Baker, who's from Sacramento, Chipper Jones, Jacksonville, and Tom Glavin from Massachusetts. Uh, at one point, they say he's only signed three guys in four years as if that's a bad thing. I mean, scouts, many, some scouts will go two or three years without getting any players because their team just didn't pick them. But it would have taken a few minutes on Wikipedia to find out where all these players are from. Instead, they just pick three players at random in Baker Jones and Glavin without bothering. I think they're from three different corners of the country. Uh, yeah, that's astounding. 
I mean, like you said, this a lot of this movie would have just taken a quick Wikipedia. Can you draft and trade draft picks? I right. I legitimately I burst out laughing when he said that when I did my rewatch. Yeah. So this was one that I said, I don't know if it was deliberate or not. And it actually might be a positive. Gus, Gus mentions at one point the possibility of putting a bullet in my head when he can't scout anymore. I don't know if you know the story of Tony Lucadello, the very famous long, long time Philly scout. Had signed I don't a bunch of players. So there was uh, maybe two books written about him. Prophet of the Sandlots, I believe, is one of them. It's a great. ESPN story written about him. Unfortunately, the story is a terrible ending. He did do exactly that. He shot himself when the Phillies finally Phillies let him go because he'd probably gotten too old for the job, unfortunately. And um, yes, yeah, a case of a guy who just simply didn't know what to do with his life. And I said at the time, and I'll sort of reiterate it here, if that was kind of their way of also like giving a you know a tip of the hat to a, a very sort of like famous, you know, pretty well regarded scout. You know, that that was one of the few things in the movie that I did walk away saying, I, I don't know if they did that on purpose, but if they did, good for them, because mm-hmm. it is a, it's a it's a famous and sad story and sort of does say something about the life. You know, these scouts, they do dedicate their lives to doing this, and then they reach a point where they kind of can't do it anymore for whatever reason. Now we have scouts just losing their jobs because scouting jobs are the number of scouting jobs is shrinking. I mean, these are yeah, still real people left and right. Yes, we do. And it's very, I find it very sad. And some of these people who end up out, essentially flushed out of the industry are, are people I know well. And it is extre- it's upsetting on a personal level. And I don't really love the direction of the industry, too. And I worry about, worry about what people like that are going to do going forward. So it was one of the – looking back at my post, I think that might be the only positive thing I said about the entire movie. Yeah, they do touch on the kind of scouts, the rough scouts life, you know, hotel to hotel – yeah, they, they do. They do seem to put like them up. That, the yeah, way. I was about to say they do seem to put them up in the shittiest hotels they can find in Carolina. There's, which there's is... no. I don't know a scout who doesn't stay in Marriotts. Come on, I'm in a Marriott property right now. Of course, we're we all stay in Marriotts because we want the points. They dramatize that, you know, dramatize that as well, you know, and and him taking his the the whole thing with he was taking his daughter with him because he was a widower, and then. Um, you know, she had they. There was an incident. This isn't really sports related. I'm not going to go into. It. There's an incident. He sends his daughter away because he said, "Oh, you know, the life wasn't good for her." I just this isn't sports related, but it was another thing that just rubbed me the wrong way. This character is supposed to be likable. And he kind of made his mistakes. He sends his daughter, you know, away. Like I'm a I'm a father. I you have to decide to, and and so are you. You have to decide, is the job more important or is parenting more important? And the fact that he right. chose to send his daughter away and stay on the job, it's just another – I mean it's not sports-centric or anything, but it's just another reason that I, I absolutely hate this movie. Yeah, it's – do I know people who have appeared to make the choice of the baseball career and life over family considerations? Yes. Would I make that choice myself? Certainly not. Uh, do I know anyone who's done anything as drastic as what Eastwood's character is supposed to have done here? Yeah, absolutely not. That's pretty insane. But it's just everything in this movie has been sanded to the sharpest, uh, like that's probably the wrong analogy, filed. That's the word I'm looking for, to the sharpest possible edge. They don't want there to be any subtlety anywhere. They're going to poke you in the eye until you understand what they're trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. It's a it's like a miserable fantasy of what the ba- the the world of baseball actually is. Yes. 
And it's it's even small stuff they get, you know, they get wrong. Timberlake's announcing voice isn't very good. The the no, lines the lines they give him aren't very good. That that's not his forte. I don't know if he actually read for that part or they were just like, we got to catch Justin Timberlake. You know, his you, you don't buy that at all. You know, he's no uh, he's no Hank Azaria and Brockmire. Uh, <laughs> no. Well, Azaria is pretty talented with the voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, he's a legend. The uh, the coach, Bo Gentry's coach, uh, his dialogue is awful. Telling his team don't suck today. Yeah. And not and not in jest and just catering. You know, there are there are tales of coaches catering to star players. But again, it's, it's something like kind of like you said, they take it to the, the sharpest extreme. Hey, this coach is is overlooking Bo's personality flaws. You know, make sure make sure you see it. They're just poking you in the side of the head with it. I mean, yes, I've, I, I can't add anything because it's it's spot on. Have I heard coaches say ridiculous shit to their teams? Yeah. Yeah. But again, like you say, don't suck today. Some parent is going to be up your ass after yeah, that. No high school coach is saying that. Ever. No. Two throwaway pieces of, of Eastwood dialogue that bother me in this movie. They're talking about the draft and they're talking about Gentry. And Eastwood says we don't need to, to sign him. What we need is a pitcher. At the second overall pick in the draft, you're taking the best player available. Yes. You're not you're not saying we I mean I you hear of teams who favor, you know, they favor high school arms or high school position players or call, you know, they favor a certain type. But it, are you know, are in the draft are you gunning we just need we got to have an arm here. No. No. If you're making any determination like that, you're going to say a position player over a pitcher because of the risk of pitchers. That's it. And there may be teams at that point in the draft that say we, we're just not comfortable taking a high school player that high. I think it goes out the window when you're picking one, two, three. You might say that at pick eight. I don't know where the inflection point is, but the idea that you would say we—I'm not sure anyone ever goes into the draft and say we got to take a pitcher. They might say we'd like to take a pitcher, but we got to take a pitcher. But sometimes the draft doesn't serve you a pitcher. I mean, you've, I know you follow the draft. The college pitching crop this year is terrible. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a college pitcher going in the top 10. So if you picked second and said, we got to take a pitcher, we'll take an high school pitcher. You can do that. It's a pretty risky crop because there's not a college pitcher worth even, even considering at pick two, at least not today as you and I are having this conversation. So yeah, I would agree that is also utterly absurd. And I'm always going to believe the worst in this movie, but I, I think his characters motivate just as written. The screenwriter's motivations is the big club needs a pitcher. We need a pitcher. Whereas reality in the draft, you're not getting help from the draft at the earliest two years from, from draft eight. Normally at the, at the absolute earliest. Right. Well, that's the wrong net. That is now um, the wrong sport, right? You can draft for need. I don't know if this is good or bad in other sports, but the uh, in, basketball and football you can take a player and he impacts your major league club right away that is not true in baseball i'm not sure that anybody gets there inside of a year in baseball anymore except for the occasional college reliever and you're not taking that guy with the second pick in the draft Mm -hmm. i mean there are guys that that casey mize could probably pitch in a big league rotation this year if they really wanted to move him we could see that there's a part of me that's sort of morbidly curious um even though we're talking about people's lives here so maybe i don't want to see this but like this, I feel like this happened a couple of years ago. And somebody, some team was in the playoffs and also had the number one pick. Heading for the playoffs, they still had the number one pick. Maybe the Astros pulled that off. They were clearly going to finish in the playoffs that year, but it was not the other one in the World Series before that. 
but also picked first or second or something like that. We'd love, what if last year the Tigers had been heading to the playoffs and had the first pick? You take Casey Mice, he could pitch in your bullpen that September. I'm not sure that that's the right thing to do. Casey Mice pitched a lot that spring, last spring, but that could happen. Some team could just say, you know what, we're going we're to take the best player. It just so happens he's probably ready to throw 10 innings for us in September and then just yeah. plan accordingly. I would actually be interested in seeing that. Yeah, well, there was the talk, I think it was two years ago, when the Astros took uh, J.B. Bukowskis. Yes. And they were, in, they were in the playoff hunt, and there was chatter, well, you know, he could get there as a reliever. He could be a reliever. Helps in September. But as to back to Eastwood, as to say, what we need is a pitcher, and I, I'm gonna, never going to give this movie the benefit of the doubt. I am 100% assuming the, the screenwriter said that because he, the big club needs a pitcher. And yeah, that's just, it's just wrong. The last little... Eastwood thing that just again shows they didn't have anyone on set is when he's giving his daughter the backstory of Timberlake's character. I think is Johnny the Flame Flanagan or something the Flame Flanagan. Uh, he says he could pitch a hundred mile an hour fastball. You don't mm-hmm. you don't say he could pitch. You say he could throw a hundred miles an hour. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just one more thing. It's in another could, movie. He, I might have let hit a hundred. He could hit a hundred. That's it. We're done. Yeah, and in, in another movie, I, I yeah, I might let it go. But um, let's get into something that that's probably kind of difficult. How would you improve this movie? This isn't a small. It's not. A, it's not a small thing to do. The main structure of the plot is flawed. Is there a way in your mind that you could have improved this movie aside from just never greenlining it and not making it and making us all better for that? There. You could probably have told a story here about, you know, I don't, I'm not going to ever agree with this sort of scouts versus stats false dichotomy here, but the idea of people within an organization arguing for one player uh, against the consensus of the remainder of the scouting department, the remainder of the front office to think there's something wrong with this player that you're not seeing. There's some reason that this isn't going to work. The problem, these things, that exists. The problem is I, I, I would worry, I'm going to sort of nitpick my own idea, Could would it be something that's too subtle, like a mechanical issue, for example? I think this pitcher's going to break down. First of all, there's never 100%. But second is, that's probably too subtle for a mass audience. You did need something like, oh, he can't hit a curveball. Oh, of course he can't hit a curveball. Average audience knows nothing about baseball. Yeah, he can't hit a curveball. Of course not. That's totally normal. The problem is they set themselves up with just right with the title. They set themselves up for failure. Um, and then they did anything wrong after that that's the sort of second problem here mm-hmm. but if they had if the premise had worked out it's you know the 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 grizzled old scout and the young analytics guy in the front office who just happened to both agree that they should be taking you know joey bag of donuts instead of bo gentry and they're you know they find a way to work together you know it's sort of an odd couple working together to gather the info find the flaw something like that Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you could have done that. It's actually, but again, it's going to be a movie that's that's much more subtle. They they kind of have this there. I think you could run the issue off Gentry's makeup. Yeah, just make it. It's it's a makeup flaw that he's not going to make it because he is not a good person. Yeah, it, it could be something as simple as he's not going to work. We're going to get him in, and the coaches are going to hate him. Okay, that happens all the time. Where you're going to get him in, he's not going to do. He's not going to do his drills. He's not. I can think of a. I don't want to name the prospect here. I can think of a prospect now who was drafted high, 
got into an organization. We knew the whole world knew he had some flaws, yet he has actually refused to make the adjustments that the coaches are trying to get him to make. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and it was there for them. They had the, Mm -hmm. the fringes of that in the script. They made Gentry an asshole for almost no reason, except to, you know, to root against him, but they didn't make it matter to any of the characters in the movie. And the one scene, and I mean, and this is a scene that is rife with cliche baseball dialogue and just beating you over the head with, hey, we, you know, we read baseball's Wikipedia page, but Eastwood is talking, I think it's John Goodman comes over to his house and he's like, you know, stats can't tell you if a kid's gonna, you know, be able to shake off, you know, going over five or something like that. And that's true. That's, that's part of makeup. You don't know if a kid is, you know, mentally tough until like you said actually sit down with him and you know meet him clint eastwood gus doesn't talk to bo gentry the whole movie right but bo gentry doesn't know gus exists right totally absurd so i i I think that's how you you make the movie you you can't do they just they had the complete wrong plot of the the stats versus the old guy um, you could bring in, you know, that the the front office is is on the guy because of certain, you know, maybe because like you like you said, you make him a an incredible athlete. You know, he's got a high exit velocity, or if he's a pitcher, he's got a great spin rate. And it's the the scout is saying, I yeah, I don't I don't think this kid's gonna work. I don't think he's gonna work out mentally. And that's a you know that's a common thing. I think you do that, and then you bring in someone completely different to write the script. You bring in someone who has actually watched a baseball game before to consult, and uh, and you go from there. I, I I think that's I mean, and you change literally everything else about the movie. Yep. Before before I let you go, I have I have a couple couple other questions. Did this movie? essentially end Jair Jurgens' career? Because in the beginning of the movie, uh, or Jair, I, I'm probably... I'm probably no, I, you're pretty close, actually. Jair Jurgens. Yeah. Uh, he he yeah. pitched for the Braves. He, I think he yeah. was an all-star one year. Started off with a great career. In the beginning of the movie, uh, Amy Adams' character, Mickey, she's on a date. She hears a guy talking about Jair Jurgens throwing a one-hitter, and she corrects him when the guy says, you know, oh, he's blowing everyone away, and she just complete smart ass oh no he's a sinker baller right. he works on the corners i think his career nosedived after this movie <laughs> did this movie kill his career no i think injuries actually killed his career although it's pretty funny i had not even thought of that and then um an- another thing was this the low point in bud Selig's tenure he, he <laughs> makes a cameo announcing the first overall pick for the red sox I-, I feel like this is the low point i don't know how much lower you could sink than this movie this is like Bob Costas, wasn't he in basketball, making a knuckle oh, yeah. joke? Yeah, that's oh, that's Bud's, that. right? Yeah, that 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 is the equivalent to Bud Selig abasing himself by appearing in this movie. He probably thought he should have won an Oscar. Oh, so bad, very bad, so, so bad. And before we go, I just want to give out. I I want to give a shout out to definitively the worst entire line in the movie. Bo has just been fooled by this pitcher. Uh, Rigo and Clint Eastwood yells at uh, yells at Matthew Lillard's character, yells at Philip, calls him a jackass, and he says, "That's called trouble with the curve." And I wanted to die when he said it. I wanted to I wanted to roll over and die. That is like how I felt uh, watching Green Book, where Viggo Mortensen, 
doing his best. You know, bada bing, bada boom, with the Brooklyn accent, even though he's supposed to be from the Bronx. He turns around and says, you know what the problem is, Doc? I'm blacker than you. Oh. I, burned, I burned the theater down. They put that in the trailer. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. They and put that still in the fried chicken it. scene in the trailer. Right? I, I mean, hey, come see our vaguely racist movie. Awful. How about that? Yeah, awful. But that's, it, it is. It was like, you know, it was like the songwriter who's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta put the title of the song in the lyrics. You actually don't. You don't have to say the title of your movie in the movie. It is just the nail in the coffin on a completely awful sports movie. Um, normally, you know, we talk about best athlete, worst athlete. I think the best athlete is clearly the pitcher, Rigo. I, I yes. mentioned him earlier. He's, you know, he's the only one who looks like he's played. The worst athlete, a special, you know, shout out to Scott Eastwood. He didn't get a lot of screen time, but he definitely made the, you know, the worst of it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, the, the character of Bo Gentry, again, it's not his fault. They cast him for a, a baseball role that he was not suited for at all. Yeah, totally agree. He is the worst. It, it is embarrassing. I mean, he gets embarrassed. That's, I understand uh, completely what you're saying, but he, he very much gets embarrassed in this movie. <laughs> And I'm I'm almost embarrassed that we had to spend well over an hour dis- discussing this. I mean, I'm I'm hurting for us, but you know, someone had to someone had to really really tear this one down. Definitely, a, definitely a negative a pod with a negative vibe. Uh, but yeah, but Keith, I enjoyed this movie it. is w- this movie is well below replacement level. Oh yeah, no, this is it's not even a uh, it's not even a four A player. Th- this movie doesn't get out of rookie ball. I totally agree. It's a this is a this is a movie that spends two years in rookie ball and gets released. Oh, it, it's awful. But uh, Keith, I really enjoyed it. I really appreciated you coming on. You know, where where can the people follow you on social media? Um, you know, I, obviously, I highly recommend your book, uh, Smart Baseball. It's a great read. Uh, you're a great reason to subscribe to ESPN Plus. Where can uh, where can everyone follow you? So uh, Twitter, I'm at Keith Law on uh, Facebook, I have a public page for fans. It's Keith Law Writer, all one word. Um, I am on the Instagram. It is not baseball related. It's a lot of pictures of food um, or me uh, uh, covering songs, mostly from my youth uh, while playing guitar. Uh, but I am Mr. Keith Law for Mr. Keith Law on there. And uh, I also have my own website where I do all sorts of non-sports stuff, including movie reviews there is an actual i found it tonight there is a movie review up there for trouble with the curve um that website is meadow party n-e-a-d-o-w party.com slash blog we might have to uh to link that review with uh when this episode goes up but um thank you yeah thanks so much for coming on i really appreciate it um again if you enjoy the pod please subscribe wherever you get your podcast we're on uh, apple Podcasts, spotify uh soundcloud and google play um, you can follow us on Twitter at Trouble Pod, on Instagram at Trouble with the Script Pod. Subscribe, leave a five star review, let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho and catch new episodes of the pod every Thursday. Thanks.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.